Welcome to episode 57 of the MMA Rundown Podcast. This isn't going to be a normal podcast where I'm running down a bunch of topics. This is just going to be a post-fight special for the UFC Jacksonville Smith versus Teixeira fight card that happened on Wednesday, May 13th. So I'm just going to go from the top of the card, uh, the main event, all the way down to the first prelim. Just recap what happened in every fight and give some reactions on that. And that'll just cover it for this episode. There's also going to be a fight card on Saturday. And I'll be doing a separate uh, recap of that. That'll just be with a full regular podcast where I'll go through all the other topics that normally come up over the course of a week. Uh, but that will be on Sunday, as it usually is. So with the main event, we had Anthony Smith, who is ranked number four, headed in at light heavyweight versus Glover Teixeira, who is ranked number eight at light heavyweight. Teixeira was coming in on a three-fight win streak, although with him prior to that, and even during some of the fights during it, you, you kind of got the feeling when you would watch Glover Teixeira that he was a guy who was just slowing down over time. He still had the power, uh, still has a lot of good technique once he gets on top um, in terms of his jiu-jitsu. But it's not as though he has the most explosive wrestling. It's not as though he has the quickest entries. Um, and on the feed, he's still relatively slow. So you've seen him have trouble in the past with guys who can keep him at range uh, or who are just a lot faster than him and a lot more explosive than him. Um, but in this matchup with Smith, you in, in one way you had a guy who was long and who could play in some ways a similar game to Gustafson. Now, granted, Gustafson is a much more technical boxer than Anthony Smith is. Um, but you could definitely play the range game and kind of pick him apart. Um but with that being said, Smith also likes to get into brawls, uh, likes to mix it up, and at times with a guy like Teixeira, that can be a dangerous game. Early on, Anthony Smith was doing pretty well, uh, looked pretty good in the first round, looked pretty good early in the second round. But Teixeira was able to land a punch on Smith's eye, and pretty much after that, Smith was just trying to hang on and survive. And one of the good things that Teixeira does a great job of is that if he's going to hunt your head, he doesn't just hunt from the same type of angle, so it's not like it's just straight punches with him. He'll mix up with hooks. He'll mix up straight punches. He'll also come in with uppercuts as well. So there's not really just one specific defense that you can use to cover up and hope that that's going to work for you. If um, Teixeira sees that there's an opening for a hook, he'll throw a hook around your guard. Um, If he sees that you're you're kind of blocking the hooks but you're leaving a little bit of space underneath, he'll come underneath with an uppercut. And during that process, he was able to land some really big shots on Smith and drop him. Uh, Had one shot where Smith was just kind of facing down and away, and it looked as though while he was holding his eye that that was going to be the end that Jason Herzog was going to step in and Teixeira was going to pull off the win, or I guess the upset, but get the win there. And Herzog let him fight. And from there, it was sort of confusing. One of the things I talked about with Henry Cejudo in the last episode is that Henry Cejudo, when he gets someone hurt, he will just swarm and throw a bunch of really quick punches, not necessarily concerned about pinning down the position, not necessarily concerned about making it so if there's no ref that he would knock you unconscious. Um, But for him, it's more about just getting a flurry there and enough to give a ref the reason to jump in. And that's part of the reason why with T.J. Dillashaw and also Dominic Cruz, they felt as though the fight had been stopped while they were still trying to fight because once Cejudo had him hurt, he just swarmed and kept punching and kept, punch, kept punching and kept punching. Um, with Glover Teixeira, once he had Smith dropped, it looked as though had he taken that same approach and just had one arm just kind of control Smith's body so he couldn't explode up and had the other arm just throw as many fast punches as he could, uh, regardless if they're blocked or not, there's a very good chance that Teixeira gets the finish right there in the second round. Um, but Teixeira was just kind of picking his shots uh, and then was starting to try to get on Smith's back and start trying to attack for a rear naked choke. Smith was doing a good job of defending that. Um, anytime it looked as though Teixeira could kind of control position and start his ground and pound, he just wouldn't really go after it all that hard. It was sort of confusing as to why he wasn't, sort of confusing why his corner wasn't urging him to do so. Granted, we know at the end of this fight that he just had a, a dominant finish from there on, but 
obviously at the end of each round, your opponent's going to get up. You're going to have to be able to bring him back down again if you want to get that same position. And you're, you're giving him a good chance to land some hard shots too. So if you have a chance to finish a guy, you got to do it, especially at this level in the game. Deshera didn't do it, didn't end up hurting him in this fight, but it was kind of surprising that it seemed as though the finish was just sitting there for him and he didn't really take it. Um, but at that point, Smith had, t- had taken a ton of damage. Uh, wasn't looking great uh, between the second and third round. Came back out for the third round. Um, again, wasn't looking great. His eye was still bothering him. Um, anytime he get hit, would sort of like be stopped in his tracks. Uh, to share, would be able to get back on top and then just dominate for mu- for much of the round. Same thing happened in the fourth round. And during the third and fourth rounds, you can kind of tell in Smith's body language where it's one of those things where it's like he knows that he's like known as this Lionheart guy. He knows his, he's known as this guy who doesn't quit. But you can kind of tell from him like that he just wasn't there and he, he, he didn't really want to be there any longer. Uh, but at the same point, he wasn't going to actually physically quit. Like, for him, it probably would have been nice had his corner stepped in and done that for him, but he wasn't going to be the one to make that call. Um, and then between rounds, between the fourth and fifth, he was telling his round, or he was telling his corner that he was losing his teeth. Um, you, you could just kind of tell by his body language that his body was physically saying, look, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm done with this. But th- that that was never going to come out of his mouth. And you could tell that was the case. Like his body language was saying, "Look, this is over. This is done. Like this isn't going anywhere. I'm, I'm not in a position right now where I can properly defend myself. Like I sh- this fight should be over." His corner didn't catch on to that. Again, I, I find it hard to to pick on corners too much when they let their fighters go. Uh, sometimes when people think that their corners are letting fighters down, I, I feel like they're going too far. In this case, I I agreed. I thought the corner should have stepped in. I don't know. Anthony Smith as well as Mark Montoya knows Anthony Smith or as, long as, as well as James Krause does. Maybe they saw something differently, but to me, the body language of Anthony Smith was really that of someone who was trying without saying the actual words, trying to communicate to his corner, guys, this is it. Like, I need you to stop this fight for me. I can't be the one to say I'm done, um, but if you guys can, can stop it for me, I can kind of protest and make it seem as though I don't want you to stop it, but I really do, uh, and then we can be done with this. And they didn't do him any favors there, and Round starts. Smith really doesn't put up much of a fight. Tashir is able to get it to the ground, uh, and then is able to do enough to, to actually get the ground and pound finish in the fifth round. So Tashir gets the win. So for Glover, obviously getting a win over a top five guy, top four guy at that, is going to put him back in that top four, top five range, uh, which is big for him. Light heavyweight division is not a very deep division right now. The top of the division is pretty much Tiago Santos, um, Jan Blahovic, and Dominic Reyes. Is Tashera going to be able to beat any of those guys? I mean, I guess he's... He, he obviously hits very hard. I, I think Jan Blahovic might be the most winnable matchup of those matchups. Um, just because Blahovic isn't as fast as the other two. The other two are also very powerful, so the power is going to be an issue for Smith or for Tashera as well. Um, but the speed, especially of a guy like Dominic Reyes, I think would be a huge issue for Tashera. Uh, so for Tashera, if he actually does want to earn another title shot, and that's not really a fight that people are begging for. The first one wasn't super competitive, and that was a much better version of Glover than what we have right now. Um, but if he does want to earn a title shot, it would make sense for him to try to angle for a fight with Jan Blahovic, especially if Dominic Reyes gets the rematch, and Blahovic doesn't want to sit out and wait the entire time. Um, so big win for him, for Anthony Smith. Uh, it's a tough loss. It's probably going to drop him out of the top five, uh, or at least it definitely will drop him out of the top four. I don't know how far he's going to drop. Um, but he was another guy who was hoping to get another shot at John Jones after making it to a decision with him. And I think at this point, that's that's not very likely. Obviously, Jones has a couple other guys on his plate right now. 
Uh, people wanted to see the Santos fight because they thought Santos won. I didn't agree with that take. I thought that John Jones definitely won that fight. Um, I tend to give a lot of credit to Light Kicks and the fact that Santos hobbled out with two torn up knees uh, sort of showed the effect that they had. But with that being said, people still want to see the rematch there. They want to see Jan Blachowicz because he's had a great run to this point uh, and had that knockout of Corey Anderson. And they want to see Dominic Reyes because they thought that Dominic Reyes won that last fight. And I tend to agree a little bit more with that. Again, I haven't rewatched the fight, but at the time I watched it, I thought Reyes had won three rounds to two. So, yes, this is very good for Teixeira, but he, he's going to have to fight one of those guys in all likelihood. Uh, maybe even have another shot with Corey Anderson. And I, I really don't see him getting a whole lot further than what he's going to be ranked at after, after this fight is over and after the new rankings are in place. But either way, for a guy his age, in, in his 40s, to be getting ranked as highly as he is, that's, that's a good feat for him, and he's got to be happy with himself. Fight before that, we had Ben Rothwell versus Ovin St. Preux. This was a tough fight to, to get a gauge on how it was going to go. You figured that St. Preux would have the edge in speed. Rothwell, he, he's a big dude. He can take a shot, and he also hits really hard. Uh, and you figured, at least in grappling exchanges, it'd be tough for St. Preux to hold Rothwell down, and if Rothwell gets on top, it'd be tough for St. Preux to get out. Uh, for the most part, Rothwell, once he got his hands on OSP, he was able to manhandle him for the most part. Uh, in the first round, was going for that go-go choke that he was able to hit on Josh Barnett. Um, didn't have the grip in place, was trying to force it in, but OSP did a good job of fighting the hands on that. Uh, but he was still wearing on him from there. I uh, was wearing on him in the clinch, landed some nice punches from range. Uh, OSP had some good moments as well from range. Uh, a couple times he'd be throwing kicks and would sort of get himself stuck in a bad position where he would um, give up a takedown or sort of lose his balance, so that sort of made it tough for him. Uh, at the end of the fight, OSP also landed a really nice combo, I think, right after the horn had blown, so after the fight was over, uh, that was able to drop Rothwell, but for the most part, Rothwell, Rothwell was able to use the size here, uh, had a more technical grappling game than OSP, and was able to keep it simple there, uh, didn't get himself in any trouble with OSP, and then on the feet, OSP definitely landed some nice exchanges, or landed some nice punches and exchanges, but Rothwell was able to do enough there to to swing the fight in his favor. Fight, I, I guess before I move on to the next fight, as far as where these guys go from there, OSP, if he wants to go back down to light heavyweight and sort of be in that top 15 range as he always has been, he could do that if he wants to stay at heavyweight. Heavyweight's not the deepest division. Ideally, you would get a win over a guy like Ben Rothwell if you're going to put yourself in the rankings at heavyweight and try to make a move up there. But he, he's 37 years old at this point. I, I think for the most part, the, the best of OSP is pretty much behind us. Um, sort of got to his peak when he got that interim title fight against John Jones. Um, broke his arm in there, and really, since that fight, hasn't quite looked the same. He, he's definitely improving in his grappling, so at least as you get older, you're still going to be strong for the most part, um, especially at the upper weights where you're not going to be dealing with the fastest guys. It, it's a little bit easier to stick around, but I, I just don't see OSP being a guy who's ever going to surge his way back into the top 10 or top, or I guess more like the top 8 to the top 5 range of his division. Now, granted, I probably wouldn't have seen Glover Teixeira getting this far. Uh, took the right matchups for him, but he was able to do so. So maybe maybe that's going to be the key for OSP is to find the right matchups, and at some point he's going to be able to storm his way back up. But I think at this point, he, he's a guy who we've all enjoyed fighting for a while and will enjoy fighting for as long as he wants to, but I don't see him being a, a future title contender or even top contender in division at any point. For Rothwell, big win. Uh, heavyweights struggling for contenders now at this point. Um, you're going to have Daniel Cormier retire after the title fight. Steve Miocic, we don't know how much longer he wants to stick around. Um, but even if he does stick around, you have him, you have Francis, you have Curtis Blades. Beyond that, 
I mean, it's not as though Ben Rothwell is going to be a guy who's going to be around for years and years to come. Obviously, he's 38 right now. But if there's any time, the time would be now to, to try to work your way up to the heavyweight division, especially with Francis Ngannou having trouble getting fights. I don't think that Ben Rothwell wants to fight with Francis Ngannou right now. But if he is looking for a way to shoot himself up the rankings, no one's asking for Francis Ngannou right now. Francis probably doesn't want to wait until after the Cormier versus DC fight. He's probably going to want to fight in the meantime. And if you're Ben Rothwell, maybe that's a fight you call for. Since no one else is asking, it's a fight you might get if you get the win, which is a huge if, and it's probably one that isn't necessarily going to come to fruition. But if you do get that win, uh, put you right at the top of the division immediately. If you get the loss, I mean, outside of that, I guess the brain damage, which is a significant thing, what else are, is there really to lose? So maybe that's where he goes next. I'm not sure exactly what he's thinking. I heard in the post-fight interview that... It was a pretty rough camp for him. I don't know. He wasn't super specific. I'm not sure if he was dealing with injuries. Um, I know he owns a gym in Wisconsin. Wisconsin has had a very long stay-at-home order like every other state in the country, although it looks like that is getting shut or that it's getting put to an end right now. Um, but I'm sure he's lost a lot of money in that way as well, so maybe that was part of, part of his frustration. But either way, if he can recover quickly and if he can get back out there, that might be a fight worth looking for for him if he wants to take a run at the title right now. Next fight on the card was was um, Alexander Hernandez versus Drew Dober. This was the only fight that I had talked about between the two cards this weekend where I was like, yeah, this is a fight you want to bet on, and I said to bet on Dober. Watching the first round, I was a little uncomfortable with what I had said because I, I was saying that I felt as though Hernandez wasn't going to be able to get this fight to the ground. If he did get it to the ground, he'd have trouble keeping it there and that there would be a big edge on the feet for Dober. Early on, Hernandez was, was giving Dober some trouble on the feet, uh, was timing his counters really well. Every time Dober would try to throw a punch, Hernandez was finding timing for his own counter. Um, but as the fight wore on, Dober was starting to get his reads on Hernandez, was able to get out of the way. Um, and then whenever he was throwing, Hernandez wasn't able to successfully find his counters. And over time, as Dober made his reads, he had a lot more success on the feet. Granted, Hernandez did get a couple takedowns that looked relatively easy for him. Um, but Dober was able to get up within about 30 seconds of each of them, if not less. And in, into the second round, Dober was just walking Hernandez up against the fence, picking his shots, and had him rocked a couple times. A couple times he got taken down, was able to pop back up, uh, had him rocked again. Hernandez never actually dropped, but he was just getting stumbled so many times that the ref had to step in and say, okay, this is enough. Uh, so for Hernandez, he was ranked 15 headed into this fight. Probably isn't going to be ranked after this. Not sure what sort of opportunities are going to be ahead for him. Obviously, as a ranked lightweight, you're going to be fighting against some either other ranked fighters or you're going to be fighting against guys who are on the verge of getting ranked. So if you get the wins, then obviously it's it's big for your career. But if you get the loss, like in this case, uh, it's going to put you into the realm of the unranked and it's going to make things tough for you. So for Hernandez, it'll be interesting to see where he moves on from here. I would imagine he's going to fight another guy who's probably like in that 25 to 20 range, uh, even though they don't officially have rankings at that point. For Dober, it would make sense for him to move up into Hernandez's number 15 spot. I'm not sure if that's how it's going to work exactly or whoever the rankers have is their number 16 if they're just going to move that guy up instead. But either way, big win for Dober, and you would figure that after this fight, Dober is going to start fighting some other ranked guys and have an opportunity to run up even higher in that division. Got to say, the takedown defense was a little bit worrisome. Not so much that he let Hernandez take him down, but more so that Hernandez was taking him down off of the first shot. He wasn't having to like chain wrestle and work his ass off to get the takedowns. They were coming rather, rather quickly and rather easily. Uh, so that's still something that Dober has to look out for. Uh, he was successful in getting backed up to his feet, so that's good. That's a skill he needs to continue to work on. But at least with his striking, very powerful guy, very big guy for the division. Um, as I mentioned, not, not only is he just a big, powerful guy, 
who hits hard, but he he's a very good striker. He's good about using his footwork to just stick people in corners. I did a good job of keeping Hernandez on the outside of the octagon for much of the second round. Uh, did a good job of making his reads on Hernandez, and then based off of those adjustments, um, strongly moving the fight in his favor from a fight where they were both landing hard shots to a, where it was like every time that Dober landed something hard, Hernandez would land something hard to a point where Dober would land multiple, multiple, multiple shots um, for every shot that Hernandez was able to land up until the point when Hernandez was just getting stumbled over and over and the ref had to step in. So great performance for him there. Fight before that, we had Ricky Simone versus Ray Borg. Fantastic fight. I was mostly excited about this because I knew the grappling exchanges would be crazy. We did get some really cool grappling exchanges with them. Um, But on the feet, man, it was pretty crazy as well. Ray Borg came in with a couple of ankle sleeves i'm pretty sure because i've used them myself <laughs> i'm pretty sure that the ankle sleeves he is using are the ones that you get at the dollar tree which it's like a buck for a pack of two uh, and he had two of them on i've actually competed in jiu-jitsu with those same exact sleeves where it's like the the dark blue in the middle and then they have like the black trim on the outside i'm pretty sure those are the ones he used uh, they didn't do like a close zoom up so it's not as i could tell like 100 percent, but that's what it looks like uh, typically if you're wearing two ankle sleeves it means that one ankle is injured and you don't want to make it obvious by just covering one ankle um, having the ankle injury, it seems as though that probably did affect how Ray Borg was fighting. He was making a striking a lot more boxing-based, um, doing a lot more with his hands. Uh, wasn't necessarily shooting a whole lot on Ricky Simone. Obviously, if you have a bad ankle, driving off of it's not going to be the easiest thing. Uh, so for him, it looked like his path to victory uh, was primarily going to be by trying to land a, a punch on the feet and to finish Ricky Simone that way. And if he got taken down, then you know maybe you can win some exchanges there and Hopefully you don't do too much damage to your ankle at that point. But it seems as though there was an injury for Ray Bork at the end of this fight that, that limited him. Not to say that I think he would have won had he been fully healthy, but it, it does seem like that limited him. But with that being said, a lot of those boxing exchanges we got were pretty pretty incredible where they were throwing three, four, five really hard punches at a time at each other. Um, it's pretty surprising that neither of them got dropped in those exchanges. Uh, when Ricky Simone was able to get to the ground, Bork did a decent job of getting back up to his feet. Simone wasn't really ever that close to submitting him, but... By mixing it up, he definitely made it difficult for Ray Moore because if, if you're going to be headhunting a guy, um, it, it's especially tough if you're worried that every time you punch to the head, they're going to slip underneath or dive underneath and, and take you down. And by mixing that in, Ricky Simone definitely gave Ray Bork some problems. So for Simone, ends a two-fight losing streak. It ended up being a split decision. It shouldn't have been. Ricky Simone definitely won the fight. Um, but it's good for Simone to get that win there. Uh, Ray Borg sort of in a tough spot where he's probably never going to be fighting at flyweight again because he's missed weight so many times. So at that point... You go from being a guy who was a top five, you know, a top contender at flyweight, moving up division, you want to be in a similar position in that new division. And a guy like Ricky Simone, very tough guy, but a guy who, if you want to be a top five, a top ten bantamweight, a guy you probably have to beat. So for Borg not to get that win, it's tough for him. I don't know who they're going to give him next. Uh, Simone's a guy who had been ranked before. I don't believe he was ranked in the, heading into this fight, but for Borg, it's going to be tough. He, he, I'm sure he'll stick around the UFC. He, he's a fun fighter to watch, and there's sort of a human interest element as well where he was having trouble with his kids um, where he had to take a lot of time away from fighting and trying to scrounge up as much money as he could to take care of some operations for his for his son. Uh, so I don't think that people are going to be too happy if he gets cut anytime soon and that's on a human interest level, never mind the fact that he's an exciting fighter. So I think even though his path to a title may not be all that easy right now, I, I think his job is relatively secure. Uh, for Simone, he gets a win. He was an exciting prospect. Had a win over Marab uh, Diviashvili, who's looking really good right now. Um, the better Marab looks, the better that win, lo- that win looks. Uh, so for Ricky Simone, uh, getting one, another one here is going to be useful for him. I think he's going to get another shot at a guy who's in the top 15, uh, and he'll have a chance to, to build some momentum and work his way back up to the top. But he's a really tough fighter to deal with. Um, keeps a really high pace, really good wrestling, um, pretty dangerous striking, can definitely hit really hard. So 
Not an easy matchup for anyone. Fight before that, we had Andre Arlovsky versus Felipe Wins, uh, a heavyweight fight between last year's PFL champion and Andre Arlovsky. I've saw a lot of people talking online about how they felt as though Felipe Lins made a major mistake by leaving the PFL where he made a million dollars last year to come to the UFC. I'm not sure exactly what Felipe Lins made in this fight. I guess I'll have to talk about that on the Sunday show because at that point the, the salaries will have come out. Uh, so I'll have a chance to look at that and talk a little bit more about it. But just because he made a million dollars last year with the PFL does not mean that he would then again make a million dollars this year. If the PFL had a season, he would actually have to win the entire thing for him to get that million dollars again. That's not a given. Uh, and then also, in hindsight, we know that COVID canceled it. So if you don't have a season to compete, you aren't going to make any money. If you're in the PFL right now, you either got cut or you were getting $1,000 a month in a stipend while they're not doing any events. So even if Felipe Lins got the minimum of 10 and 10 for the UFC and all he made was 10 grand for this, which I'm sure he made more, that's more than what he otherwise would be making in the PFL, assuming he takes another fight and gets 10 and 10 for that fight as well. So while he will have made a lot more money last year than he will make this year, by going to the UFC, he's actually able to fight, which the PFL is not offering right now. Um, but on top of that, in the UFC, you, you can make a lot more than just $1 million if you are the best in the world. And if you're the PFL champion and you think you are so good that you can be the UFC champion, why not go to the UFC? So... I don't fault him for, for switching over to the UFC, but takes this fight with Arlovsky. Sort of a close fight. Uh, a lot of people I saw online had thought that Linz had won. I was leaning a little bit towards Arlovsky, but again, I wasn't watching it as a ref or watching it as a judge, and I was sort of looking away at, at times during the fight. It's not as though I was watching super close, but it looked like for the most part, Arlovsky was doing a pretty good job uh, when he was making the switch to Southpaw. I was giving Linz a lot of trouble. I think these guys are teammates, so Linz is probably used to sparring Arlovsky in Orthodox, so when Arlovsky was able to switch it up to Southpaw, made things difficult for Linz, um, but Arlovsky ends up getting the win here. For him, keeps him around the top 15 of the division, um, so he'll sort of stay in that gatekeeper role, I guess. The more you you win, the more opportunities you're going to get towards the top of the division, but I don't see him being a guy who's going to be cracking like the top eight or going beyond that. Uh, for Felipe Linz, would have been nice to get a win over Arlovsky if you can go from winning the PFL tournament uh, and then coming in the UFC and getting one over Arlovsky. It won't take long for you to, to work your way up the division, as I mentioned before, with heavyweight. After Nganu, there, there just isn't a whole lot up there. there there's Curtis Blades as well. Uh, but there, there, there definitely is space to, to work your way to the top, and it doesn't take a whole long, a whole, that long of a time to, to make your way to the top. So had he gotten the win, would have put him on a trajectory where if he gets a couple more fights this year, he could be ranked in the top five by the end of the year. Um, by getting the loss, though, obviously that's not going to be on the table for him now again. If certain opportunities open up where he's able to take a fight against a higher-ranked guy and he gets a win, that, that can always move you up in a division really quickly. But it looks like at this point, Felipe Lins is going to have to prove himself against another guy who's sort of around that, sort of around the edge of the top 15 um, and then try to work his way back up again. A fight before that, we had Michael Johnson and Tiago Moises. I'm putting up a video right now that'll be on my YouTube and my bit shoot that is breaking down the actual finish from Tiago Moises. In the first round, this fight was going terrible for Moises. Uh, it was pretty clear from the outset that Moises was going to want this fight to be on the ground and Johnson was going to want it to be on the feet. Johnson did a great job of keeping it on the feet for much of the first round. Uh, had his back to the center for the most part, which is good. Um, Moises' back was to the cage. And Johnson was just picking him apart multiple shots at a time. Uh, was, was sort of like grunting every time he did it and kind of taunting Moises. Uh, but Moises had no answer, was shelled up for most of the time. Uh, would throw back a, a strike here and there, but really wasn't committing to too much because he was worried that any time that he commit to a strike, he'd leave an opening for Johnson to land. 
and so after the first round, it's like, wow, Michael Johnson is just running through this guy. This is, this is impressive. So Moises' corner was pretty, pretty straight up with him, and they're like, look, like this, this fight needs to go to the ground for it to go well for you. Uh, so you need to go out there and do whatever you can to take him down. Uh, so second round starts, uh, Moises just dives at him, dives for a double leg. Johnson, for the most part, is able to circle away. Um, Moises was able to just hang on to Johnson's right ankle, though, and then with that was able to take that grip, close his grip up, uh, come up on a single leg, um, got up to his feet on that single leg. Whether he felt like he'd have trouble finishing the single leg because uh, he'd probably have to drive Johnson towards the fence or whether he just felt like it'd be better to attack a leg, he decided to, to drop onto Michael Johnson's leg that he had control, which was the right leg. From there, it depends on how good your jiu-jitsu is. Moises is an excellent jiu-jitsu fighter, so for him, it makes sense. I know Damian Maya oftentimes will do the same type of thing where Maya is so confident in his jiu-jitsu that if he feels as though he's not going to finish a single leg, he'll just drop down to half guard and then try to finish a single leg off of a half guard sweep. I guess for Moises, the idea was similar, where it's like, look, I don't know for sure that I'm going to be able to finish a single leg takedown on him, but if I go back, if I go onto my back, I can threaten with submissions, or I can just go for a sweep from there and try to get a dominant position um, starting from a jiu-jitsu setup rather than from a wrestling setup. But either way, he goes down to his back. Um, at that point, Michael Johnson had a, a few different ways that he could have gotten out of that position. Um, Moises hadn't yet controlled his hip. Um, so from there, Johnson can either kind of drive through... Um, push Moises's outside leg down and just kind of drive through and get into like a half guard or like a half butterfly position from there. Uh, get his hips back, throw some punches, and then try to stand back up. Or you can just try to like cut and run, but Johnson really didn't do either. I ideally, you would have done option A there. Uh, option B, oftentimes it can work, especially if you're slippery, but it's a little bit riskier. But Johnson just kind of like sat in the middle, just sort of like waited as Moises was able to adjust his position. I feel like Moises actually was just trying to use the the single leg X guard, or you try to get into a single leg X guard to sweep, but Johnson left the opening for him to attack the leg, so he did. It was officially a heel hook finish. It wasn't actually a heel hook. A heel hook is re regarding a specific grip where you kind of have like your forearm and like the crook of your elbow uh, underneath the guy's heel, and you're sort of like lifting up from there. Uh, that wasn't the grip that was used. It was a straight ankle lock grip. It looked as though he was like going for a straight ankle lock while also putting pressure on the knee, and by using his free, or using, actually he ended up using both legs, uh, started off using his free non-reaping leg, but then also brought the reaping leg over to keep Johnson from turning. Uh, it kept Johnson from taking the pressure off the knee, so it looks as though the tap was from the pressure on the knee. Um, but if you're going to call it any kind of submission, you should probably call it a straight ankle lock, not a heel hook. Fight before that, we had, or I guess talking about what's next for each of them, for Michael Johnson, I've heard some people online just really digging into him, saying that he's the most overrated guy ever. The reason why Johnson had a lot of hype behind him is because he knocked out Dustin Poirier, he defeated Tony Ferguson. Um, I believe he had another really big name on his resume as well. But Michael Johnson has beaten legitimate guys, um, guys who have worn the interim, strap, the interim strap at the very least. So it's not as though he's recognized as being a top fighter for no reason. He's recognized as being a really good guy because he's beaten really good guys. Uh, but with that being said, he's had some trouble lately. This was a fight where he clearly had a path to victory over Moises. You could tell by the first round. Um there were just some really surprising mistakes for him to be making, especially given how long he's been in the game, um, that allowed Tiago Moises to, to finish that at, that straight ankle lock. Um, that was a little bit confusing, but it's one of those things where watching this fight, do I feel like Michael Johnson's a bad fighter? I mean, his jiu-jitsu could definitely use some work. He could definitely used to, used to roll more. Um, let's get some good nogi sessions in with some actual jiu-jitsu guys, um, especially guys who are going to attack his legs. But... 
it's tough for him because he, he's still a talented fighter. He's still got decent wrestling uh, for the most part. If you're a wrestling specialist, you're probably going to be able to have your way with him, but not everyone is that. So if you're a guy like Tiago Moises who has decent takedowns from jiu-jitsu, but you're not like a, a pure wrestler, you're going to have trouble taking Moises, you're going to have trouble taking him down, and you're probably going to have to resort to pulling guard to to attack. Um, his striking, it's not the best striking in the division, but it, it's quick. He, he has a lot of power. He's been able to knock guys out like Dustin Poirier. Uh, was technically just beating the crap out of Tiago Moises there, so that's not necessarily bad. The jiu-jitsu usually is enough for him to survive and get out of trouble, but in this case, just made a lot of mistakes that, that cost him. So Johnson's still a pretty solid overall fighter, but just really, really big mental lapse here. I couldn't hear what his corner was telling him throughout there. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what kind of relationship he has with his corner, where it's whether it's one where every time the corner says something, he does exactly what they say, like like he's acting as though he's a video game character, or if he has a corner that more just kind of like throws out suggestions and kind of lets him do what he wants to do, uh, which isn't a bad thing, but that's another way that people can go about it. Um, but either way, it was kind of confusing to see him just make the wrong decision over and over and over again. And in, in what started as a position where it wouldn't have been all that difficult for him to just get out of it and get back up to his feet, um, at that point he could have also made it where he just got swept, um, but he just kept making mistake after mistake that led to him getting finished there. Uh, so as far as what's next for him, he's, he's still a name. I, I don't think the UFC is going to cut him out through this fight. Uh, Tiago Moises is sort of an up-and-comer. I'm sure he'll fight another guy who's like in that up-and-comer um, category. Uh, but he's going to have to get some wins soon if he wants to stick around the UFC, and that's a shame. Uh, for Tiago Moises, I mean, good one for him. The fact that he looked so bad in the first round is going to be tough for him. I don't think the UFC is going to be rushing to, to give him a guy who's borderline, um, borderline in the rankings. Uh, but you get a win over a name like Michael Johnson, that's definitely good for you. You get the win bonus. Uh, so that's another thing to be happy about. But he's obviously got, got some work to do on his wrestling and got some work to do on his striking uh, if he wants to be able to beat some of the top guys in the division because what we saw in this fight wasn't a great look for him up until he was able to, to find a way to get a finish. In the Sajar Eubanks versus Sarah Morris fight, uh, I think at this point Sarah Morris is now 6-7. and seven, or I think she has more losses than wins. Um, it's always annoying, even when they have a full crowd, when you have, like, the female fighters who just, like, start doing their tennis grunts. Um, but especially when there's no crowd to, to kind of drown it out, it's really, really annoying. Uh, but Sarah Morris was doing a lot of that. Um, had some moments in the second round where she was landing, but on the ground, wasn't super effective. Um, did a decent job of setting up arm bars, but didn't do a whole lot once the arm bar was set up to finish it. I feel like there were a few adjustments she could have made to, to make those arm bars a lot more, a lot more dangerous for Eubanks. Uh, Eubanks was able to land a lot of punches on the ground. And then on the feet early on, Sajar was able to outstrike her. Um, like I mentioned, had some trouble in the second round, but was able to take over, especially as the fight went to the ground in the later rounds. Fight before that, we had Gabriel Benitez versus Omar Morales. Um, these guys put on a hell of a fight. Benitez, it, it's kind of funny that they were mentioning the Luke Rockle comparison. That they both um, were southpaws who like to throw that back leg kick and just kind of wing it and both of them would take a lot of damage in the course of doing it. Now, obviously, we saw at the end of the fight that Benitez's leg just had, like, this chunk that looked like it had been cut out of it um, from all the damage that had been caused by his kicks getting checked. Um, credit to him, he kept throwing kicks even after the leg got bashed open pretty badly. Um, but for the most part, Morales did a better job with his hands, um, did a good job with his kicks as well. This was a fight where he had a southpaw versus orthodox, so both of them uh, were able to do a lot of damage with their, with their rear legs. Um, but Morales did a really good job of working the body as well. Um, and then also was able to outland him on the feet, so that was enough for Morales to get the decision. But before that, we had Hunter Azure versus Brian Kelleher. Uh, Azure was talked about as this guy who has a really good wrestling background heading into the fight. Didn't really use it a whole lot outside of defending like a takedown here and there from Kelleher. 
Um, I'm not sure what his reasoning was, whether he was just concerned about the guillotine choke of Kelleher or if he felt as though he'd have the edge on the feet. Uh, had some good moments in the first round, uh, but in the second round was starting to starting to struggle a little bit. Kelleher was getting his reads, uh, was able to land a huge hook to, to drop him, and then after he was dropped, uh, landed a couple of punches to put him out and get a dom- or get a a really big exclamation point on his win there. Um, fight before that, we had Chase Sherman versus Ike Villanueva. Villanueva was making his UFC debut. Sherman was coming back after a little bit of a layoff, although he had some wins and some smaller promotions. Uh, Sherman was the longer fighter here, the more technical fighter here. Uh, Villanueva had trouble getting within range. Sherman was doing a good job of peppering him from the outside. Um, when he would come inside, do a good job of mixing in the elbows as well. And it was getting Villanueva to a point where he was sort of getting gun-shy because he felt as though no matter what range he was in, uh, Sherman was going to have him beat to the punch. Uh, and that led to uh, him eventually getting finished off in the second round, uh, standing up against the fence after Sherman landed a big elbow, um, not in the middle of the octagon, but away from the fence a little bit, but then backed Villanueva up and then was able to finish him along the fence. Uh, so that covers it for this card. Um, there's going to be a fight card on Saturday. I'll recap that on Sunday. I'll have the full episode on Sunday as well. I'm not really going to go too deep into this card because I just did that with this podcast here. So. That's something for you guys to look forward to. Obviously, this is going to be available immediately on audio. It'll pop up on YouTube um, probably Thursday morning. Uh, so hopefully you guys enjoy. If you guys have any comments on that, feel free to leave a comment in the comment section. As you guys saw with the last podcast, anyone who left a comment uh, got a response. I like talking with you guys. I like going back and forth. A lot of you guys bring up some interesting points. Um, and with that being said, I enjoy the conversation. So if you guys have any questions there, I'll, I'll answer them in the comment section. And if I get enough questions, I might even... Uh, start implementing them in the podcast as well. Uh, So that'll cover it.